So uh, we're in a section of Isaiah where um, we're, we're wrapping up a section uh, coming to the, to the end of not the whole book, but of a portion of the book. Next week, we'll start a new section. Um, but this, this concludes in the last three chapters, 53, 54, and 55, with a progression, a progression of teaching and thought. And the, the first thing we saw in chapter 53 was Jesus' suffering for sinners, that he, that he takes the place of sinners, that he actually stands in our place and, and suffers for us. And that that suffering, we're told, his wounds heal us. That the death of Christ is our only hope of being restored human beings, being restored to what we were meant to be. And that's where he goes in 54, which we saw last week. And we saw there that this healing power from his sacrificial death actually does transform our lives. It makes us new people. It turns everything upside down um, in, a, in a really good way. It takes our brokenness and heals it. And now as we get into chapter 55, the question becomes, okay, how do we get in on this? We've seen Jesus' suffering for us. We've seen his power to transform, but we haven't seen clearly laid out how do we get this applied to our lives? How do we actually have the healing, transforming power of Jesus work in our lives? And that's the, the beautiful thing about this, this text. So um, what we're going to see is this. We're going to see that all of this, this amazing healing, this amazing grace, this, this help for us, which we would expect to cost a lot of money or effort is actually completely free. It's not out of our price range. It's in our price range. We are going to have all of our guilt washed away, all of our pain and brokenness healed, all of our dissatisfaction satisfied in Christ. Um, and none of that costs us anything. It is a gift from God extended to us. So everything that we most desperately want in our lives is ours by grace, by his gifts of kindness. It cost Jesus everything. That's what 54, 53 talks about. That Jesus actually pays the price that we would have had to pay ourselves. He paid all of that, so we pay nothing and that, this is the message of Isaiah 55. In a nutshell, this is it. We are all, all of us, apart from Jesus, we are all needy, desperate, hungry, thirsty beggars. And that's all we are. But that God gives us his grace and satisfaction and joy to us freely in Jesus. And so what we're going to do as we walk through this text, we're going to see three things. We're going to see God's invitation to us to, exceed, to receive his grace. We're going to see what our response to his grace should be. And then we're going to see how God applies his grace to our lives. So that's where we're going to go. Um, let's start uh, in verse 1. It's 1 through 5 is the first section. And this is God's invitation to, to us to receive grace. Here's what he says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. 
Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let's stop there for a minute and talk about this. The invitation that God gives us is this. Come to, come everyone who thirsts. He's using an analogy of thirst and hunger uh, in this passage, but primarily thirst. And the the reason why he uses thirst is that it it represents so much of of our longings, of of what we desperately need, right? You, You cannot live for very long without water. You can live many days without food, unpleasantly, but you can still pull it off. If you're fortunate, you can live a long time without shelter if the conditions are right. But without water, you only have a few days at best. And so thirst is something that people in Isaiah's day who lived in a very deserty kind of place would have understood the, the value of something to drink. So thirst is representative. It's representative of our deepest longings, our desires, our hopes, our dreams. And, and what God is inviting us to is this. He's saying, if you're thirsty, if you are desperate for something different, something that truly satisfies you, come to me. That's his invitation. And, and here's the thing. If, if you've ever and we all have, right? If you've ever thought that something aside from Jesus would bring you the satisfaction you long for, we're all deceived in, into thinking these things, right? Like the, be- the better house will make us happy. The nicer car will make us happy. The better job will make us happy. The, the better marriage will make us happy. Whatever it is, right? We, we think that if we can just patch the problem that, that we're going to somehow attain the satisfaction that really only Jesus can give us. And, and so we, we always, we pursue these things, we chase these things, but then we actually end up getting um, dissatisfied by them pretty quickly. We find out that, you know, money's not really a source of happiness for long. We, we know that the things we buy get boring pretty quickly. We, we get that, we understand it, and yet we continually go back to those things. We continually try to put band-aids on bullet wounds, right? There's, there's something, there's a deeper problem that can't be patched. And, and that is what Jesus is telling us today is that the, the only way to truly satisfy our, our thirst in our souls is to come to him, to come to the waters of grace, and so I, I think of it this way. There's a difference between drinking water and drinking Coke, okay? Both have their, their place, and, you know, I like Coke as much as the next guy. Maybe you're a Pepsi person. God will forgive your sins. Um, but a Coke is bizarre because you'll, you drink a Coke and you're still thirsty. It's almost like they engineer it to be that way. Oh, I wonder, wonder why. Um, you're thirsty, and so you're like, oh, ice-cold Coke, I want this, and you drink it, and then, you know, a few moments later, you want another Coke. Water's different, right? Water actually does something. It quenches the thirst that you actually have. We don't believe that to be the case because water doesn't taste like Coke. We'd rather have the taste. 
But if we want to be satisfied, we, we don't go to the Cokes, we go to the water. And, and so whenever we try to patch our satisfaction in things that are not Jesus, it's like we're never going to truly be quenched. Our thirst is never going to be satisfied. And so we, as we get into the New Testament, we'll see just very quickly here something Jesus says about himself. In John 7, verse uh, 30, uh, 37 and 38, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is, is applying this text to himself. He's saying, if you are thirsty, you need to come to me and drink. So that, that's the invitation, right? The invitation is, come to me and have all your needs met. But then grace is even greater than just that. We're invited at the end of verse 1 to come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is that about? Well, these are symbolic as well. And wine is symbolic of joy. It's symbolic of celebration. It's why we drink wine at celebrations like weddings. It's why Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Wine is a symbolic picture of, of celebration. And, and so obviously we know we can overdo wine and we're warned in the scriptures to not be drunk with wine, but we are also invited to partake of wine in a celebratory way, in a way that is appropriate. But what, what Isaiah is talking about here is that grace is this soul-satisfying thirst is met in the waters. But it's not just that, it's also we get all this joy in Christ as well. We get to experience the celebration of God's kindness to us. And then we're also invited to buy milk, which is interesting uh, we're, we're in the dairy state. We all like to drink milk and all that. That's all great. But milk is, is symbolic in the Old Testament, at least, of nourishment, of care, of having our, our needs met, right? And so we see this, this beautiful grace upon grace that not only do our, does our soul get satisfied, but we also receive joy and we receive nourishment and care from Christ in the gospel and so it's grace upon grace, like John talks about in John chapter 1. And yet what's amazing about this is that this is the invitation to us, and yet there is no cost attached to it. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. And then at the end of the chapter, in the verse rather, it says, without money, and without price. It's emphasized again and again that the grace that Jesus offers us costs us nothing. It's a free gift. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. We certain, certainly don't need to deserve it. It's given to us for free. And that's the emphasis of, of chapter, of verse two rather, excuse me. He says, he asked some question. He asked a question. He said, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. 
he, he asks the question, a couple of questions. He says, why are you spending your money and laboring for something that doesn't actually bring you satisfaction? That's an important question we've got to ask our hearts because we all do this, right? We, we think that the good news of Jesus is too good to be true. It's too good to be free. It can't really be this way. Christ can't just give us all that our hearts long for, for nothing. So we better, we better spend our metaphorical money or our labor for, for trying to earn this and deserve this. And Jesus is going to say to us, no, no, no. Why in the world are you doing this for something, one, that's freely given, and two, it's not even going to satisfy you at the end of the day. What you will earn with your labor is not going to bring you joy. It's not going to bring you care, and it's not going to bring you satisfaction in Christ. So then he goes on to say this, listen diligently to me, eat what is good, delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear and come to me, Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So Jesus is, is telling us through Isaiah's words that we, we get this. We don't pay a dime for it. And what we receive in exchange is an everlasting covenant with God. He makes a, a relational bond with us through faith that we didn't earn or deserve. And so we see this amazing invitation to come to him. We also need to see what happens next, which is our response to this. How should we respond to grace? What should we actually receive? Because we've already established we can't pay for it. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. So so what do we do? do? Look at verse 6. We're going to look at verse 6 through um, 9 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But what, how do we respond to it? Here's the answer. The answer is repentance. It is turning away from the from the waters that we try to drink from that don't satisfy. It's turning away from the the labor of our hands that we think will earn us a place in God's kingdom. It's turning away from our efforts to the true source of life and joy. It's 
essentially turning away from drinking out of the toilet when God gives us living waters to drink from. That's what we're called to do. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. And then it says this. Here's the repentance part, right? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The call for each of us as as people who are sinners and struggling with sin is to turn away from our, our ways and our thoughts, return to the Lord, and receive compassion. That, that's our call. It's to turn. This is what the word repentance means. It means to, to go in a different direction. It means to change course, turn 180 degrees in the other direction and go that way. And so God is calling us not to work for this, not to earn this, but to simply turn from the things that are devastating our lives to the source of true life and joy in Christ. That's what we're called to do. And what's amazing in in verse 8 and 9 is is that God actually tells us that his ways and his thoughts are so much better and higher and different than ours. We're called to forsake our way, which is the ways in which we live that don't honor Christ. We're to forsake or turn away from our thoughts that, that don't align with Christ. And we're to turn to him and receive and respond to his ways and his thoughts. We have to acknowledge that our ways and thoughts do not align with his ways. And so it's an even more amazing mercy that God would give us grace when he is so better than us and so much higher than us. So we have this this very simple, right? We've got the invitation to come. We've got the response that we need to have, which is to turn from our foolishness and turn to him. But then the remainder of this chapter is pretty simple. It's how does God apply this grace to our lives? How does he apply it? Look at verse 10, um, 10 and 11 in particular here, and we'll, we'll stop and talk about it. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So so Isaiah is given a very simple picture here. That of rain and snow coming down from heaven, watering the earth. And And he says, as that happens, it makes the earth grow and sprout it makes seeds come out and, and become food for us. A lot of you are gardening. This is the summertime. This is when we do all this. And, you know, we got a ton of rain the last couple of days. Our gardens are going to be loving that, right? You, see, you can see the evidence of God's design on the earth and how this works. But 
the point is not to teach us a science lesson about rain and plants. The point is to use this as an analogy, a picture of how God actually changes us, how he applies his grace to us. That's where verse 11 comes in. He says, so shall my word be. Just like the rain falls from heaven and waters the ground and produces a crop, so God's word goes out into our hearts and actually changes us, matures us, grows us. God applies his grace to us in a very simple way. In fact, what Paul would call even a foolish way, and that is his word. His word. God applies his grace to us as his word goes out and we hear it, respond to it, and we're actually growing through it. Paul says that this is a foolish thing because in human wisdom, you wouldn't think that God would employ such a simple method to change people's lives, but he does. He speaks to us through his, through his word. We have his word written down in a book called the Bible. God's word has been preserved for us for millennia and will be forever. And we have his word that actually is taken into our hearts and like rain and snow provides the water for the earth. So God's word provides life for us. It's, it's how he applies his word or his grace to us. It's his word that goes out into our lives. And here's what the word does. It exposes the darkest sins in our heart. It shows us where we failed. And most importantly, it shows us how to return to him. Have you ever read the Bible or heard the Bible taught and just were struck by how much you needed to hear that? Well, that's God, God working in his word into your heart, applying the truths of God's word to your life and, and exposing what needs to be confessed and turned from so that we can re- give, give our hearts back to him. But here's the amazing thing. God actually promises that as his word goes out into our hearts, it doesn't ever do nothing. It always does something. He says, it shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is saying, I have a purpose in sending my word. And you know what the purpose is? The purpose is to show us our sinfulness, show us the grace of God, and compel us to move towards him in a repentant way so that we actually can receive the joy and the satisfaction and the hope that that he promises us. That's what he does. He, he uses his word to transform our lives. And, and I know that that sounds really, really basic and simple, right? And when, whenever anybody comes to me for counseling, which happens as a pastor, people ask me for, for help. And I, I, I always take them to the, to the Bible, not to be trite or simplistic, but because this is actually what is going to work and change someone's life. They, you don't need pragmatic things if those pragmatic things are not rooted in what God's word says. 
you don't need just a bunch of earthly, worldly wisdom and try to patch your life together. What you need is the life-giving truths of God's word to bring to bear what is in you that needs to be turned from and received in Christ. But, but what we know for sure is that as we get into God's word, we won't be the same. We will never be the same. He will accomplish what he intends to accomplish. We have to be in it though. We can't neglect it. Sunday mornings are vital, but Sunday mornings are not enough. The Sunday morning is a, is a part of the rhythms of grace that God has given us, and I am grateful for the local church. I, I love the local church. And we need each other, right? I said last week that change is a community project. We need each other to help each other. But, but ultimately, this is, the, this is the thing, is we need God's word, yes, applied to the situations of our lives. We need God's word to speak into the situations that we're dealing with. But if we're not in God's word, if we don't have people pointing us to God's word, if we don't have things being brought out from his word, then where's the change going to come? It's not. It's not. And there, there's some, somebody at one point said, I'm sure a lot of people have said it, but if you show me a person who is a Christian that is growing in grace, you'll see a person who's embracing the word of God in their life. And if you see a Christian who is struggling and going seemingly backwards, it's very likely that that person is neglecting God's word in their life. That is, that is the truth. That's how it is, right? And so, and this is, listen, I need to hear this as much as anyone in this room. Pastors, I think, have a very strange dynamic because we, we have to prepare week after week. And some weeks, you just start, you're just trying to crank something out and there's no joy in it. There's no actual anything in the heart. I know my heart's been there. I know pastors wrestle with it all the time. Um, we need, I need God's word in my life, not just to prepare something, but to speak into my heart. And you need it too. We all need God's word to drive into our hearts what God's grace is for us. And, and so as we, as we get through this, as we go into the next couple of verses, 12 and 13, begin to show us what God intends for his people to experience as his word works in their life. And look, look at what it says. For you shall go out in joy and led forth in peace. The mountains and hills before you will break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, that of course is a met metaphorical, right? You're not going to actually, we're not living in Disney movies. You don't actually have, you know, trees singing to you as you walk by. Um, but this is the, the showing us the demeanor of the heart that God creates in us. It's joyful. It's peaceful. Those are actually the, the first couple of uh, first few things in the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. These are the things that God produces in our hearts through his word. And so we see his, his work. And then look in verse 13. He says, 
instead of the thorn shall come, come up a cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What God is saying here is this, that in our sinful hearts, apart from him, separated from him, we are thorns and we're briars. We're not life-giving. We don't have growth in us. We're just shallow roots that can be torn out in a, in a, with very little effort. But what God's grace produces in us as we grow in his word is we're transformed out of being thorns and briars into being trees, right? It's getting symbolism to, sh- to talk about the depths of our growth. And you can pull out a thorn, uh, you know, a little twig that's got thorns on it pretty easily. The, 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 the roots don't go deep, but you can't pull out a tree from the ground with all your strength on, in your own power, right? They're, they're too deep. They're too strong. They're too large. And so God is saying, you're going to, I'm going to create in you. I'm going to take you out of this thorn bush life and give you the life that's deeply rooted in me. So, so as, we, as we look at this passage, here's the thing. We have an invitation from God to come to him. And, and the way that we come to him is through repentance, turning from the false saviors that we cling to. And, and the way that we experience his grace is through his word. Uh, are you compelled by that? Are you actually believing that? Do you actually believe that God's word is his means of grace in your life? And, and are you compelled to be in it? Are you compelled to go to it day to day? It, the purpose of the word is to help us get to Jesus though. That's what we need to understand. It, we don't read the Bible out of legalistic obedience because we feel like that's what good Christians do. We read the Bible because that's the path to Jesus. It's how we get to know him. It's the person and work of Jesus that we should long for as we dig into the word. If we're not looking for Jesus, we're not going to see what God wants us to see. And so I want to just encourage you with this, that Christians don't worship this book. We worship the God who is told to us in this book. That's a big distinction. We're not, we're not worshiping words on a page. We're worshiping the eternal word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We are not worshiping a book. We are worshiping a living Savior who died and rose for us. And so the Bible is our means to get there. The end is Jesus. The means is the Bible. And we got to get that. And so I, I think that really does, when we understand that, when we embrace that, when we believe that with our whole heart, that's what makes the Bible compelling to read. When you can actually see Jesus in it, that's what makes you want to keep coming back for more. It, if you're just reading for the sake of reading, you're, it's going to suck your, the life out of you and you're not going to find joy in it. But if you're not reading at all, and it, or if you approach it and think, well, I, I just don't want to do this, and so you do it begrudgingly, well, the hope is that God will actually get you out of the begrudging nature 
and will start to work in your life. But you're not going to get that work in your life unless you're reading the scriptures. And some of you might think, well, okay, that's fine, but I don't like to read, or I'm not good at reading, or I can't hold my attention when I'm reading. Okay, that's valid. Everybody learns differently. We happen to live in a time of history where there are things called audiobooks. And so I'd encourage you, just as your pastor, get one of those if you don't like to read. They're not expensive. In fact, you can get an app on your phone that can read to you. And so this is, a, this is an amazing thing, right? Be in the Word. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't matter how you get into the Word as much as that you're getting into it. It doesn't matter so much what translation you read as long as you're reading one that you can, that you can understand. We want you to be in the Word because that's how we get to Jesus. It's how we see Him. And that's the point, Right? It's come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. We're going to Jesus for the source of satisfaction. But the way we get there is through repentance and dependence on him through his word. So let me just close with that. And, and I hope that as you think through this, that you, are, that you take to heart the need in your life to, to read and engage in God's word, because that's how we get to Jesus. And, and his purpose will be, will be amazingly seen in our lives as we do. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this morning and this, the reminder, Lord, that my heart needed today. Uh, it, it's, it's hard, Lord, at times when, we, um, when we're just so dry, we feel like the heart is just dried out. There's nothing there. And so we need your word again to refresh our souls. We need your son to speak into our hearts. I don't know where each person in this room is, but you do. And you know exactly what they need. Lord, I pray you would apply these things by your word through your spirit into our lives. We pray that we'd walk out of here changed people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.